God's word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. As we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing a growing power struggle between Jesus and this group, the priests and scribes and elders, a power struggle between Jesus and the religious leaders. So with that power struggle growing and in the background, our hero, as it were, our teacher, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, told a story. But it wasn't a story to soothe them. It it was not a story to get a laugh and maybe relieve the tensions between them. Surprisingly, Jesus here takes a sharp turn and suddenly tells a story in order to square off with them and to confront them. That's surprising to us because up until now, if you know the Gospel of Mark, you've been tracking this story with us, Jesus had been carefully avoiding confrontation with the priests and the scribes. But now, in the infinite wisdom of Jesus, the time had come. These supposed religious leaders were not willing to die for their cause. Jesus was. So what story would Jesus tell in order to confront them? The story Jesus told was an old story, a story I would say that he borrowed, a story he borrowed from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, the story was told there of a vineyard. The vineyard is God's people. But even there, even in Isaiah 5, it seems to be a borrowed story. The earliest we find this story is in the Garden of Eden. Think of it this way. God made a garden to care for Adam and Adam to care for the garden. Should have been a beautiful thing. But Adam had an attempted takeover. Fast forward to the Isaiah 5 story we mentioned. God made a vineyard to care for Israel and Israel to care for the vineyard. Isaiah seems surprised at how bad the grapes turned out, despite how good was the care of God. Now fast forward to Mark chapter 12, our story tonight. Jesus tells a similar story, a parable. God made a vineyard to produce fruit for his vine growers, and he asked his vine growers to produce fruit for the vineyard. But we have here 
the story of an attempted takeover. So it brings us to the main point of our sermon tonight, printed there if you're looking at the bulletin. Jesus taught a story of an attempted takeover by vine growers in order to reveal that we are either for or against him. First we'll see in verses 1 through 5 as the parable starts to get unfolded that God patiently provided well for his vineyard. Many gifts, faithful messengers, expecting good fruit. Second, we'll see as the story continues, verses 6 through 10, how God's well-loved son was sent, rejected, and vindicated. And then, verses 11 and 12, if we won't receive God's son and God's messengers, then we're fighting God. So let's start our parable. Verse 1, the parable of Jesus is clear, it's simple, straightforward. It's an engaging story. A man creates and builds a vineyard. The vineyard is the first gift, and there are many gifts that go along with it, gifts that were necessary in order to do well with a vineyard, a fence, the uh, deep pit for the wine press, a tower, and permission to use it all for a fair leasing price to vine growers. The man we now know as the owner of the vineyard then went away, traveling to yet another country, showing perhaps the final gift, the gift of trust. I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave the country, and the whole vineyard is entrusted to you. The owner shows here generosity, planning, thoughtfulness, provision, patience, and even trust. There's a lot communicated in the initiation in verse 1. Verse 2, the patient owner expected one thing. Passage of time, harvest time comes, the season came, we're told in verse 2. What does the owner want? One thing, fruit from grape Vines, you'd expect to get what? Grapes. From, from a vineyard, you want fruit. From well-stocked supplies and a well-furnished vineyard, you might expect a lot of grapes. Perhaps some of the grapes could come in the form of wine so that it could be delivered to the traveling owner in another country. Verse 3 is the first indication to our patient owner that something was wrong. Verse 3, it's shocking that the vine growers take his servant, the servant that the owner had sent to collect some of the grapes, and they beat him. What on earth? Why are you beating him? Right? They sent him away empty-handed. It's, of course, a reference to there is no fruit, there are no grapes, there's nothing to show for all the investment that the owner had made in the vineyard, the fence, the tower, the pit, and even assigning these vine growers. There's nothing to show for it. Verse 4 contains more indications that something really is wrong. This time, after the patient owner sent another servant to the vine growers, they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Worse than empty-handed. Now there's shame and loss. Verse 5, the patient owner sent another servant to the vine growers. What did they do to him? I'll say it right from the verse. Him they killed. Okay, the story just got ramped up. (laughs) They're beating people, okay, empty-handed, oh right, shame and loss. They just killed the servant of the owner. Let me read Mark 6 verses 27 and 28, where Herod killed John the Baptist, we read, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter. You remember the whole story around that. I don't have time right now to unpack it, but it's supposed to be in our minds. 
when we hear in verse 4 that someone got clunked in the head and we hear in verse 5 that someone got killed. John the Baptist was not the first prophet that they killed. A pattern is emerging. The patient owner sends servant after servant. The vine growers have a long pattern of mistreatment of said servants. Verse 5, he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. We have the story, verses 1 to 5. There's a long history of God's prophets being disrespected, God's prophets being killed. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Amos, and most recently, as I just said, John the Baptist, whose mission from God Jesus had just defended in chapter 11, verses 29 to 33. John's baptism was from heaven, Jesus had declared. John's preaching was a preaching of repentance. Where's the repentance, O chief priests? None on the part of the king, Herod. God sent prophets, no spiritual fruit. There's a long pattern of a lack of repentance, lack of spiritual fruit from God sending prophets with the message from God and the gift of the word of God. All along, God had been patiently cultivating and was merely expecting the spiritual fruit of repentance. Where is all the fruit from God's generosity and patience, his thoughtfulness and provision and trust? Romans 2.4, Paul asks it this way, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 2, verse 4. But let's get back to our story. We're moving on to point two. God's well-loved son was sent, rejected, and vindicated. Verse 6, the owner had sent servant after servant, right? But there's another type of servant that he had not yet sent. The owner still had his own son, his son whom we're told that he loved. He had not yet tried sending his son. So verse 6, finally the owner sent his son to the vine growers saying, they will respect my son. There's no one greater that the owner could send than his own son. Will he really send his own son? We, we want to cry into the story, wait, don't send him, don't send him. The surprising answer is, yes, he will really send his own son. The the pattern of patience is a greater patience than we even thought. Did those vine growers respect the owner's son? No, and verse 7 provides their internal conversation. The vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. This is the beginning of an attempted hostile takeover. It first takes place in hearts. It first takes place in conversations. And what's the resulting action? That action comes out of their hearts. And in verse 8 we read, the vine growers took the owner's son and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. There was no fruit. They disrespected the owner by killing his son and didn't even have the basic human decency to properly dispose of the body. We get the image here of them throwing the body out of the vineyard. Verse 9, Jesus asks the priests, scribes, and elders this question regarding his parable. What will the owner of the vineyard do? It's one of those questions that everybody knows the answer to. The owner of the vineyard is under full-on assault. He has to act now or the owner of the vineyard will no longer be the owner of the vineyard. This is the moment. You you have to do something. 
as the owner. But there's one thing that the vine growers seem to have forgotten. The vineyard belongs to the owner. It really does. The owner is patient. He has shown himself to be extremely patient, beyond what we might even expect or encourage or support of how patient the owner is. But he's not about to lose his vineyard. The owner is still intent on harvesting fruit from his vineyard. So the final action of the parable is the action of the owner, and that's what brings the story to completion. Not the action of the villains, the action of our hero. The action of the owner brings the story to completion, and the owner who had formerly gone into another country after he sent his son and his son was killed and his son's body dumped, he will respond, and as our Lord Jesus tells it, it goes like this, the owner will come and destroy them and give the vineyard to others. End quote. End parable. End story. Action of the owner brings it to completion. Now, I want you to stop and imagine the scene. Isn't that what we're supposed to do with the parable? Imagine the scene. What are we really supposed to gather here, Lord Jesus? Ever since the owner left the country, these vine growers had really settled into the vineyard. They, they kind of took ownership of it. This is their place, right? They, they dispatched several servants, beat them up good. And there were many, and they started to beat them and kill them, or beat them or kill them and toss a coin. And when the sun came, they, they took murderous action with premeditation. I, this is not a court of law, but you could prove that. With a greedy intent to inherit the entire vineyard as a result. And so we're supposed to imagine what happens next. With what horror did the vine growers look up one day to see who coming? The owner coming, not alone, but with his whole military entourage, heavily armed. And if it were a movie, one of these genteel, careful movies, you know, about this, and this is the point where the screen goes black, and words appear on the screen, and he destroyed them. It just ever so genteel, right, to explain, because we don't get the gory details here. It was ugly. It was violent. It was over for them. He didn't destroy the vineyard. He didn't allow them to destroy the vineyard, because it's his. The vineyard was removed from the care of evil vine growers and restored to the care of vine growers who would care for the vineyard according to the instructions of the owner and for the fruit to be produced, to be returned to the owner. See, there's one large warning that's printed across the parable, and it's tucked within the word attempted in my title, attempted takeover. The large warning is this. Don't mess with the owner. That's the warning across the parable. Jesus is going toe-to-toe with these religious leaders, and he's saying to them, I have put up with you guys long enough. This temple is my house. God the Father sent me. You guys are doing wrong, and you've been doing wrong for a long time. All you will succeed in doing is having an attempted takeover. This is really Jesus saying a worldwide message 
to anyone, anywhere, who would try to do damage to the church of Jesus Christ. It might seem like the church sits there vulnerable and unprotected. A a villain might think of it as easy pickings for evil planning of unscrupulous or greedy people. It seems like anyone could just swoop along and easily take over the church. And Jesus Christ is putting a shot across the bow, a little reminder that will never happen. It's mine says the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a parable by the Lord Jesus, about the Lord Jesus, and about his father and he being the owner of his church, his vineyard. Everyone and anyone who has interactions with the Lord's people has to answer to the Lord himself. Let that warning settle in for anyone and everyone. It all points us to the cross of Jesus. He's teaching the cross Before the crucifixion even happened, after finishing this parable, he now asks these religious leaders whether or not they had read a certain sentence from the Bible. You see it in verse 10? Have you not read this scripture? Oh, which one is that? You know, this scripture. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who are the builders? Well, the religious leaders are supposed to be building. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders are supposed to be building the church, right? They're building the kingdom. They're building it. And so they need materials, right? They need stones. You put stones on the next layer of stones, and they're building, and they come across this stone. Well, this won't do. You can't use this stone, so they reject the stone. Throw it off. Jesus said, let me tell you something about that stone that you threw away. It is the most important, crucial element in all of the building. You can't do anything without that stone. You see it? Jesus is the Son of God who is being rejected even then in that moment. And he would soon be even more severely rejected by these very same fellows. He is the stone of the building that God was working on. Jesus was being rejected by these various scribes and chief priests and elders, and they're supposed to be building the kingdom of God, but instead they're rejecting the most significant, most crucial piece of the construction of the building of God for a movement of God. They could try to do away with the Son of God, but all that would result in is they would be discarded themselves, and it would be yet another in a long list of attempted takeovers. Jesus will not be unseated from his church. If a church ceases to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, he will depart, and it's no longer a church. They can't steal the glory of Christ in his own church. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. He gets all the attention because he has all the power. He's the one who plants the vineyards. He's the one who digs the pit, builds the tower, provides for the grapes to grow. He's the one who provides fruit. He gives converts, those who will finally repent. He makes worshipers. He gives them power and strength to serve him. There's no elder. There's no minister who can succeed in an attempted takeover. And you say, well, I beg to differ. Look at church history. No, no, no. The Lord Jesus Christ is always head over his church in control over each situation. The church belongs to Christ, and he will protect his church, and he will protect his church fiercely, we're shown in this passage. 
Don't mess with the owner of the church. Don't mess with the head of the church. Isn't that comforting? Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 3, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 1 Corinthians 3, 17. Screen goes black and it just says God destroyed him. We move on to our third point from verses 11 and 12. If we won't receive God's son, if we won't receive God's messengers, we are fighting God. See, these vine growers in the parable made a big mistake. Since the owner was gone in another country, they thought they could gain something by some bloody method. So they implemented their bloody method but they did not gain control of the vineyard. They may have thought that they did for a moment, but they didn't gain control of the vineyard. Verse 11, Jesus himself quotes the following verse, Psalm 118, verse 23. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What's the Lord's doing? Look at the prior verse. The stone was rejected, and then that same stone became the cornerstone. That's what's marvelous. What is that? That's Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. He's rejected, and then he becomes the capstone. He's not just spoken back to disrespectfully. He's killed, thrown over the wall, as it were, put to the cross, buried in a tomb. He was rejected in full-blown rejection, even unto death. But it wasn't the end of him. He rose again. He was made the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. This is what is marvelous in our eyes. He's talking about the resurrection. God is not stunned by the vine growers rejecting his son. He's not uh, stunned by the rejection of Jesus. This is what God the Father had known and planned all along because it's the method by which we will be saved. We know that because it's in Psalm 118. That's the reason for the quotation. The parable of Jesus emphasized the rejection of the Son, and then the quotation from Psalm 118 shows that it's from an ancient prophecy that God the Father had planned the rejection of his Son. He had planned the killing of his Son because of what would happen next. What would happen after they reject and even kill his Son is he would reverse all of it. He would make him alive again, make him the cornerstone, and deal with anybody who he needs to deal with. Psalm 118 prophesied the resurrection of Christ. What's marvelous in our eyes? The resurrection. What's the Lord's doing? The resurrection. It's how Jesus was vindicated. That's how the parable is properly understood. Now let's go to the back to the parable for that statement by the owner when he said, they will respect my son. That's when we wanted to cheer. Wait, don't send your son, remember? We think the owner is being silly. He's not seeing just how dark and vicious and murderous these vine growers are. And we first assume that saying they should respect my son, I kind of am hoping that they respect my son. If they're any sort of respectable human beings, they'll respect my son. But that's not what God was saying at all. We go back and reinterpret the parable. God was saying it with authority. Listen to it again. They will 
respect my son. You see it? It's the clinching beauty of the parable. Before this is over, my son will get the respect that he deserves from every mouth, from every knee, from every person. Because my son is the king, he is head over my vineyard, he is head over my church. Anyone who doesn't respect my son will answer to him and answer to me. That's what God is saying. That's what Jesus is teaching. In verse 12, the scribes and the Pharisees understood that. Listen to this. They were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. You think? (laughs) Yeah. And so what did they do? Did they repent? No, the last line is ever so hauntingly sad. So they left him and went away. The story of Jesus really got to them. It got to the priests. It got to the scribes. It, it, it touched their consciences. He actually taught them what they were doing in truth. They knew the story was about them. It's fascinating because not all of the parables of Jesus were understood by the listeners, right? On this day, with this parable, they instantly understood it were impacted by it, but still no fruit. They, they just would not repent. Brothers and sisters, if the chief priests and scribes and elders that moment had fallen down on their knees and they had cried out to the Savior of the world, we are guilty as charged, sir! Mercy! What would the Lord Jesus have done? They would not. He had come into the temple seeking fruit that after all the prophets that he had sent, the fruit was warranted to be required. The fruit is repentance. He came into the temple seeking repentance. He told the parable seeking repentance. This moment of Jesus entering the temple, live in person, God the Father sent his Son, the Son takes on human flesh, both God and man had two distinct natures and one person forever. This moment had been prophesied about, this moment but had been anticipated for generations. This moment when Jesus is standing in the temple, live in person, the Messiah himself. But the people rejected the constant calls for generations of prophets to turn to God and repent, turn to God and repent. And he's standing right in front of those who he knows and they know they want to kill him. And the only thing keeping them from killing him right then and there is their fear of people. If they were committed to their cause, they would kill him and take whatever comes. They're not willing to die for their cause. But Jesus is. He's saying, even after you do kill me, which is coming, I'll still be the cornerstone. I'll still be the head of the church. You're asking me by what authority? I'm asking you, how did John the Baptist have authority to baptize? Is it from heaven? You can't answer, so I said, I'm not going to tell you. But you know good and well that I have the authority from God the Father. Everything hinges on Jesus. So the question to us from our study is, are we following Jesus? Look at the generous heart of Jesus crying out in grief 
Jesus is more grieved than unrepentant sinners. Listen to this. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Matthew 23, 37. So what have we seen? We've seen how Jesus taught a story of an attempted takeover by vine growers in order to reveal that we are either for or against him, that the, the vine growing, the, the owner, God, patiently provided well for his vineyard gifts and faithful messengers expecting good fruit. His well-beloved son was sent, rejected, then vindicated. And the lesson is if we won't receive God's son and messengers, we're fighting God. I have two application points. Number one, repent. <laughs> are you surprised? That's one application to us. One out of two, repent. How do we respond to the messengers God sends us? I'm not talking Isaiah and Jeremiah. I'm talking as God meets you in your devotions, as as God brings his message across you, and you know it's the Holy Spirit talking to you. Do you welcome that? Or do you seek to silence that voice of God from others? The lesson of the parable is not to be confined to bad religious leaders with whom Jesus was talking that day. The parable applies to everyone around the world. It applies to all of us tonight. If God did this to his own priests, scribes, and elders because they hardened their hearts, will God spare us if we harden our hearts? The application to us is to stay fresh in our repentance. All the prophets for a long time have been saying one word, repent. And now the Son of God has come. And what does he say? All the way back at the start of the book of Mark, Mark 1.15, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Lord Jesus says repent. Repent of your attempted takeover of your life. You're trying to run your own life instead of having Christ run your life. Repent. Think of how this passage teaches this so clearly. When Jesus exposed these wicked men, two different reactions were possible, A or B. A, they could see themselves as they really are, repent from their sin and turn to the Lord and trust him alone to grant forgiveness and healing. Or the other possible reaction is B. B, they could harden their hearts against the one who just exposed them, namely Jesus, and they could let the anger of their heart turn to bitterness of heart and then resolve to get rid of him. Option B is what happened to the vine growers in our story. Option B is what happened to the priests and scribes who listened to Jesus in this day. And in the end, the vineyard was given to others. In the end, the ministry of the kingdom of God was taken away from these priests and scribes and given to others. Why? Because the priests and the scribes could understand that the teaching of Jesus was about them, but they still refused to repent And the clear application to us is when the Holy Spirit's convicting us, we are called to repent. When the word of Christ is teaching how you, specifically how you've sinned against God, I plead with you to repent. That's our first application. One more. Be thankful that Christ has built you into his spiritual vineyard, his spiritual temple, his church. Be thankful that Christ has you in his church. I use an example the example is the Apostle Peter. Peter had times that we could call stubbornness. Peter had moments where we could call it the refusal to repent. 
You remember the classic story of Peter denying three times that he even knew Jesus before the rooster crows in the morning. And as a result, Peter is dejected and rejected. It's looking pretty bad for Peter, right? What happens then? Initiation from Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ moves towards Peter, speaks to him, helps him see his own heart, offers restoration, and Peter takes it. Peter repents. All we can say is that Christ changed Peter's heart and granted him the precious, life-giving gift of repentance. Everything changed at that time. All we can say about post-repentance Peter is that he was so thankful. Look at the, uh, the pathway of Peter, the arc of Peter's path, whose name means rock, by the way. Peter means rock. He was rejected, then brought back in. That's the ark. Rejected and brought back in. It's the same ark of Christ's pathway. Rejected, made cornerstone. Right? It's that pathway. It's the repentance and restoration. It's rejected and brought back in. That's the pathway for you. That's the pathway for me. Listen to Peter give us wise advice as I close tonight. Besides repenting, the other application is being thankful. So I close with these words from Peter the Rock. Also the words of God, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. So the application is this. Be thankful that Christ has built you into his church. Let's pray. Father, grant us this